one of the questions that often gets asked by Christians, particularly as they grow closer and closer to death, is can I know, can I be assured, can I have a sense of certainty that I am saved? How can I know for sure Can I know for certain that God has called me to salvation? Use a biblical word, elect, chosen. How can I know that that God has really truly saved me from my sin and therefore I am welcomed into heaven? Perhaps that's a question that you've wrestled with yourself. Christians have sought to answer that from really various different ways. Some find assurance of salvation from attending church on the Lord's Day. They're here, they come to church, they they sing hymns, they listen to sermons... And they, they draw from that a sense of assurance, a sense of certainty of salvation. Others, because of some official edict of the church, some official uh, ordinance or doctrine or, or announcement from the church. Church membership, for example. You're a member of a church, therefore you're saved. Or you take communion, or you were baptized, or you believe a certain set of doctrinal statements. You read the Baptist Faith and Message, or the New Hampshire Confession of Faith, or the 1689 Second Baptist, or the London Baptist Confession. You say, I believe those things, I, I trust those things, therefore I'm saved. Perhaps this morning your confidence and certainty in salvation is because your mom and dad said that you were saved. You grew up in church. Mom and dad said that you're a Christian. Or perhaps this morning it's because a a well-meaning pastor or priest affirmed you and said, you're a child of God. While not all of those are bad, and I think each of them have a particular place in the life of God's people, and can be helpful to lead one to certainty. So surely gathering on the Lord's Day is a good thing. And there's great benefits to be had from being around God's people, to be regularly hearing God's Word and being encouraged by it and exhorted and corrected by it. But just being here does not necessitate that you're a Christian. Just being a member of a local church doesn't mean you're a Christian. It may mean you're a really good actor. And you've deceived everyone into believing that you are a Christian. Well, friends, many of us can be easily deceived. The Bible regularly tells us that the heart is easily deceived because it's deceptively wicked. 
And so, lest I unsettle your faith and make you feel as if, wow, no one is a Christian this morning and, and there's really no assurance of salvation, brothers and sisters, I want us to look at God's Word because I think that's what Peter is after. Peter is trying to help the church of Jesus Christ be certain of some things. And I think this morning, certain of salvation or certain of election, that God has called you to salvation. So how can we be certain that we're saved? That's what we want to think about this morning. How can we be certain of election? Now in the first uh, letter of Peter, this is the second letter, because it says number two, because there's a number one. And in the first letter, we saw that Peter was writing to a congregation who was scattered across Asia Minor, so he's writing to several churches um, there in Asia Minor, and they were facing persecution from outside of the church. Um, they were facing persecution for following Christ. But here in the second letter, Peter takes up a different task. Now they're not faced with persecution outside of the church, but from within the church. They're now faced with uh, these false teachers it seems to be a group of false teachers. We don't know what they were specifically teaching, though there seems to be uh, some coherency. As we read the letter, we see at the heart of their false teaching was the denial of the second coming of Christ, particularly uh, the judgment of Christ that coincides with His return. So Jesus, when He comes again, He's going to judge the world seems to be that they denied the judgment of Christ at the second coming. Furthermore, these false teachers advocated a life of freedom. A life of freedom. Uh, not from sin, but from rules. A life of freedom from rules. They, they said, you know, uh, rules are, are not good. Uh, Christians shouldn't be rule followers, but just live however they feel. They affirm the doctrine of grace. We're saved by grace and not by works. So it really doesn't matter how we live. We can live however we want. I mean, we're saved by grace. And, and really what they did is they took grace, they ran with it, and they ran over it. They lived a life of immorality and sensuality and called others to do the same. They had no place for godly living. No, no compartment to teach Christians and encourage them. Rather, they encourage Christians to abandon the foolish notion that you could actually be holy. The foolish, silly endeavor that one could actually be godly. And so, Peter writes to clarify the truth. He writes to, to set this congregation back on the right path of biblical truth and to encourage them to persevere in godliness as a way of reminder. He does this by way of reminder. So I invite you to turn to 2 Peter. Um, 2 Peter in chapter 1 and verse 3, uh, page 1018 in the Pew Bibles in front of you. I invite you to grab that Bible, open it to page 1018. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, um, we encourage you to take that one and read it. We want you to know God's Word well and study it. Today we're going to be in chapter 1 and verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. 
through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities, is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers and sisters, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. May God bless the reading of His Word. God calls people. God calls people from sinful corruption to a life of godliness in preparation for their entrance into the kingdom of Christ. I'll say that again. God calls people from sinful corruption to a life of godliness in preparation for their entrance into the kingdom of Christ. In other words, God call, God's call is effectual to save and effectual to bring about the godly life for which He calls. Godliness confirms Godliness confirms to you and to others that you have been truly saved. A godly life confirms to your own heart, gives you a certainty of salvation and a certainty to others that you are truly saved. And so I think the purpose of Peter's writing and and what I hope to be the purpose of our time is to exhort Christians to be certain of your election by persevering in godliness. So the sort of the how-to, how, how, how are you to be certain? You are certain as you pursue or persevere in a life of godliness. So if you, if you don't pursue godliness, you, you will be the most unassured Christian there is. You will have no hope. And you will not know. And so Peter begins here by reminding us of the foundation of a godly life. He reminds us of the foundation for a godly life then exhorts us to pursue godliness and to do so earnestly. And finally offers us several motivations for godly living. So it will serve as our outline this morning. First, the foundation of godliness. Secondly, the exhortation to godliness. And finally, the motivation for godliness. What motives do we have? Why should I be godly? First, Peter 
like the rest of the New Testament writers, never exhorts anyone, never commands anyone to do anything apart from some theological truths, some indicative statements about God and about us. So that's the foundation. Peter lays a foundation. Just like us, if we were to build a house, we're going to lay a firm foundation. As, P, as, as our Lord and Savior says, it's a fool to build a house on sand. On a firm foundation, we build a house. And so Peter says, one must build on the foundation that is laid before us. Look with me in verses 3 and 4. There we see the foundation of godliness. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. God provides all things needed for eternal life. God alone can save. He's alone able. Peter here is saying that salvation is not by human effort or by human ingenuity, but by God's power alone. It is by grace that we are saved and not by works. And so the grace of God in salvation enables the believer to be godly. As Paul says in Romans 1.17, that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. God saves by His power alone. Not by us cooperating with His power, but by His power alone. And brothers and sisters, this offers us such incredible encouragement this morning. We could sit and meditate on all of the little parts and parcels of, of this particular verse. I'll emphasize them. His divine power, not yours. His divine power. His glorious power. The same power that creates a universe out of nothing is the same power at work in you. His glorious, omnipotent, omniscient, all-knowing power, this glorious, transcendent power has granted to us, has been given to us. Notice what he says, all things. Not some things, not a little bit of things, not most things, but all things. Brothers and sisters, do you believe that God would give you all things you need? Now, he is not saying that he's going to give you everything you ask. You don't need a, a Mercedes right around town in for life and godliness. So he ain't going to give you that. He says He's going to give you everything you need for life and godliness. Now I think what He is after here is the idea of eternal life. Notice He brackets this paragraph in verse 3 and verse 11 with eternity. He concludes with what He begins with. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. God gives you everything you need for life and for godliness. In, in other words, He gives you everything you need for eternal life. As Paul reminds us, I am sure of this, that He be who began a good work in you will bring it to completion 
at the day of Jesus Christ, at the the return of Christ. I am am sure of this, he says. I am confident of this, that, that God began the work and God will finish the work. And so for the believer, we don't rest in our own power and our own ability, but in the power of God and what He has provided for us. Notice what he says, though, that this divine power has been made known to us through what? Verse verse 3, through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. It's through the knowledge of God that we learn that He has empowered this work in us. When we are saved, often we come with simple faith. We don't know anything about election. We don't know anything about God's sovereignty and election, and that He's called sinners unto Himself. We don't, we don't know these things, nor do you need to know those things in order to be saved. What Peter is saying is, hey, there's a lot more going on in your life than you realize. God has been at work from eternity past to bring about this great work in your life, and He will bring it to completion. And so it's through the knowledge of Him. And again, we saw last week that central, one of the central themes in this letter is knowing God. Knowing truth about God gives Christians a sense of assurance and a firm foundation. This is what Jesus prays for. And this is eternal life. That, you, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. It's through knowledge of God that we are saved. And so our chief end is to know God and to enjoy Him forever. That's what we are to be about in our lives as God's people. is to knowing God more and more. We alluded to that last week and we'll speak more of that in the weeks ahead. J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, sets forth these questions. What were you made for? To know God. What aim should we have in this life? To know God. What is the eternal life that Jesus gives? To know God. What is the best thing in life? To know God. What in humans gives God most pleasure? Ah, knowledge of Himself. Once you know, you have become aware that the main business that you are here for is to know God most of life's problems fall into place of their own accord. Our chief end is to know God, and it's through the knowledge of Him that we get a sense of assurance, a sense of uh, certainty of the truth. God is at work in us. That's a promise to claim here this morning, eh, that God's provided everything we need. And so this morning, these exhortations you're going to hear about holy living, about godly living, is on the foundation of these eternal promises that God has given. Notice with me in verse 4, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, with the purpose that we would be delivered from sinful corruption. God's call upon the the Christian, God's call upon the sinner is effectual in two ways. Number one, people listen to God. And number two, God is effectual to deliver them from sin. This is what he's writing here and what our Lord and Savior taught. Many Christians struggle with this aspect of, of the effectual call. That is that when God calls a sinner, he repents and believes. If you doubt that, John 6 is a great place for you to meditate. 
Hear what Jesus says in John 6.37, All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. I, I don't know how other to take these words of Jesus than all that the Father gives to me will come to me. All will come. And so in Christ we have these promises of God that eternal life comes to those whom are called. We know those who have received the call, listen, they pick up the phone, they answer it. And the call of God is effectual in verse 4 to deliver us from sin. It's not only effectual to save, but it is effectual to deliver us from sinful corruption. In other words, the call of God works. One of the most frustrating things I know that many of us deal with in our modern age of cell phones is people carry these silly things around with them all the time. You would expect that they would actually answer it when you call them. How often it is that we call our spouse or our children and they don't answer. Well, you have this silly phone with you all day long and you don't answer your silly phone? Come on! Oh, brothers and sisters, that is not the way with the call of God's people. When the call comes out to God's people, it is effectual. We pick it up. When God speaks, we answer. Jesus says it this way in John 10. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. Listen, the sheep... Hear his voice. This is a reference to Jesus. Hear Jesus' voice. And he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has has brought out his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him. For they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him. For they do not know the voice of strangers And he goes on later in that text, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold, and I must bring them 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 in also, and listen, and they will listen to my voice. God's call of sinners is effectual. Effectual to save and effectual to bring about new life and holy living. This is the confidence that we live in today, that we will be holy because God said we'll be holy. That he who began a good work will bring it to completion. Or as Paul says in Ephesians 2.10, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. You've been given new life. You've been created new that you would be like God. This is a great encouragement. And we have no hope of godly living apart from the power and promise of God. Apart from the power of God and these great promises, we have no hope. But these enable us, empower us, give us the strength and faith to know that when we step out to live godly lives, that God is enabling us to do that. We're not going to fall as we're going to see in a moment. That we won't fail. Surely we'll stumble. Surely we'll have really, really bad days. But in the end, all those whom are truly saved will endure to the end. 
God's power alone enables believers to live a life of godliness. We see something in this text that is quite unique. And quite important when we talk about God's sovereignty and election. We do not want to diminish human responsibility. So I am not advocating and saying to you this morning that God does everything. You just sit back and you just sort of let go and let God. That is not true. There is work to be done. There is work to be done. But that work is done through the power that God gives us. There is divine sovereignty. God calls sinners. But there is human responsibility. We have, we have responsibilities that we've been given. We have commands, clear commands, that we are to do things in the power of God. God saves us not to sit, but to, but to do things for His own glory. And so what's to follow is our responsibility in light of God's sovereign call upon the Christian life. In light of God's sovereign power, in light of His sovereign call and the great promises we have in the Gospel, we see this exhortation in verses 5-7 through seven to, to pursue godliness. A very clear, in verses 5-7, through seven, a very clear exhortation to godly living. And Peter writes, for this very reason, and because of verse 3 and 4 is true, because God calls sinners to holy living, because of this reason, because of all we just said, make every effort to supplement your faith. Make every effort. Work hard to grow in godliness. Earnestly, Peter says, pursue godliness. Christians work hard And notice he doesn't say it's going to be easy. He doesn't say being a Christian, following Christ, and living a godly life is like a cakewalk. It's all going to fall into place. The pieces will will just kind of come. No, it's going to be tough. It's going to be hard. That old nature is going to want to fight against you. But we work. We put our effort, he says, every effort. We come up with new and creative ways by God's power to fight against sin and to grow in godliness. This is true of every Christian. I wonder how much time, how much effort do you give each week to pursuing godliness? How much attention do you give to growing in some of these qualities that we're about to look at? You think it's just going to come naturally? You think it's just going to come by osmosis? It's just going to come? No, Peter says it's going to be hard work. It's going to require effort. But brothers and sisters, remember that effort, that power, is by God's power. Paul says the same in Philippians 2. In Philippians 2.12, we see this connection of divine sovereignty and human responsibility kind of compiled in one verse. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence. Listen to what he says. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. He says, work. Work out your salvation. Pursue godliness. Pursue holiness. Work it out. And then he goes on, for it is God who works in you. Work, he says, but be reminded, God is at work. 
both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is our confidence, brothers and sisters, that when we step out in faith and grow in godliness, that it is God who is at work in us. And so at the end of the day, when all is said and done and we stand before God, we're not going to say, man, I really worked hard for godliness. We're going to say, wow, look at the measure of God's grace in my life. Look at how God's power has been made evident in my ability to overcome addiction. Look at how God's power has been made evident in my life by laying aside lust, laying aside greed. laying aside. I could not have done these things in my own strength, but God has empowered me. R.C. Sproul in his sermon on this text writes, Regeneration is monergistic, which means that it is not a joint effort between you and God. You cannot cause yourself to be born again. You cannot do anything to help yourself to be born again. Your rebirth is totally dependent upon the soul working of the Holy Spirit, who is sovereign and immediate power raises you from spiritual death. You are utterly, completely passive in that action. But listen, however, from the moment until you die, from that moment of conversion until you die, the progress of your Christian life is synergistic, which means that it involves a cooperation between you and God. God saves alone, but He invites you in salvation, in your sanctification, the process of becoming holy, and that process of godliness, He invites you and He cooperates with you. So you're not doing it alone. Well, let's look briefly here, and very briefly, we're going to go quickly through some of these um, because of time. Eight characteristics of a godly life. Peter here lays before us eight characteristics of a godly life. This list is not very different from what ones we find from the Apostle Paul, though some of the language is slightly different. We see eight characteristics. First is faith. The foundation of all godly living is faith. We don't want to just set aside faith and, and say it has no part. He says supplement your faith. Faith is the regular diet that you eat. What we're looking at here are the supplements that you take that add to your faith that help to round it out and put flesh on it and color on it and meat and bones and muscles. Faith is weak when these characteristics, when these qualities are not evident in the life of God's people. And so our faith must grow through these ways. First, secondly, virtue. For the Greeks, virtue was the sum of all moral perfection, moral excellence. This is the this word virtue is the same word that, that Peter uses back up in verse 3 when he talks about God calling us to his own glory and excellence. The Christian life is a reflection of God's excellence. And here Peter may be using the word in the way Aristotle writes, in the sense that virtues are those things which are praiseworthy. As God's actions are praiseworthy to us, so we are to live in a way that is praiseworthy towards others. A, worth, a life worthy of praise is a good measure for you this morning. We are to have virtue in the Christian life. Not only that, he says we are to have knowledge. Christians are to know God, as I alluded to in verse 2. Growing in knowledge of God is central to the Christian life. Growing in knowledge. Growing in self-control. 
Here, Peter has in mind restraint of one's emotions. Restraint of one's emotions. You have your emotions under control. You're not quick to decision, but you're under control. Steadfast, the idea being endurance, perseverance. Christian life is not one of wishy-washy, but steady, enduring trial, enduring difficulty. Verse 7, and godliness with brotherly affection. Godliness is a mark of God's people. Here, the ideas of piety. Your character reflects that of God's character. The exhortations here are huge, aren't they? These are not small. Christians are to be godly as God is. Also here, brotherly affection. Brotherly affection. Love for brothers and sisters in Christ. As John reminds us in his gospel, as Jesus says to us that this is how the disciple, this is how the world will know by our love for one another. Love is is really central to the Christian life, and Peter then concludes with this final quality of love, a command given to us by our Lord, the chief command to love the Lord our God and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Love is central to the Christian life. Love is central to characterize who we are as God's people. And the pursuit of godliness is the responsibility of every believer. These these characteristics, and boy, we could spend time thinking about them and putting flesh on them. But the point is, it remains, this is the responsibility of every Christian to grow in these things. And so my question for you this morning is do you see these evident in your life? More than that, do other Christians agree with you? You see, you might think, oh yeah, I'm loving. But your reputation speaks otherwise. You might think, I know everything, I don't need to be taught anything. But that attitude alone reflects a lack of humility and a lack of knowledge. You might be thinking this morning, man, I've got my life under control. I'm steady and steadfast. But every time the president gets on Twitter, you go crazy. (laughs) Are you steady and steadfast? Are you running around, the sky is falling, the sky is falling? Or are you trusting the sovereign work of God? The pursuit of godliness marks those whom are truly saved. These characteristics we wear, not to show off, but to show that we are truly born again. Finally here, I want to look briefly at three motivations for godliness. Excuse me, there's more than three. There's four. There's five. There's five motivations for God. <laughs> Peter offers here in verses 8 through 11 five motivations for godliness. Five motives, five reasons why every believer should be active. And, and they sort of like a crescendo louder and louder and louder and louder until you get to the last one. Okay? So they're going to start sort of mild and grow in their noise. First, godliness keeps you from being a hindrance to gospel ministry. 
Godliness keeps you from being a hindrance to gospel ministry. In verse 8 he says, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, notice, notice they are yours, you own them, you possess them, and they're growing, they're increasing. There's no stale and stagnant Christian. Uh, there's one that's always growing. And brothers and sisters, if, if one of us is not growing, we need to have enough resolve in the gospel to stand up to them and say, Hey, why aren't you growing? How, let me help you grow in grace. Let, help me, how, let me help you grow in the gospel. We need to see these growing. But listen, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. The, the guy who's always reading but never growing. The, the one who's always here on the Lord's Day hearing God's Word in Sunday school has their Bible, they're reading, but they're not growing. It seems to be it's because they're not pursuing a godly life. Holiness is far from them and is not a priority to them. And so Peter motivates us by reminding us that, listen, godliness keeps you from hindering gospel ministry. What hinders churches from growing spiritually is the old leaven. Like a cancer that spreads, ungodliness spreads in a local church like a wildfire and creates ineffective ministry. This is why Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 exhorts the church to excommunicate an unrepentant believer. Lest the entire congregation become affected by his false theology that godliness is unimportant. Unimportant. Godliness keeps us from hindering gospel ministry. Verse 9, number 2, second motivation. Lack of godliness leads to spiritual amnesia. Lack of godliness leads to spiritual amnesia. Look at verse 9. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind. Having forgotten that he, is, he was cleansed from his former sins. Now, it may appear that Peter's confused about what it means to be nearsighted and blind. How blind folks are not necessarily nearsighted. Uh, they can't see anything far or near. Um, but Peter here has in mind here one who is spiritually blind. One here who cannot see. One who has a spiritual forgetfulness. They have been forgotten what they were saved from and saved to. You've been saved from sin to glory. You've been saved from corruption to holiness. That's what that's the exchange that has taken place. And so the lack of godliness leads to spiritual amnesia. We forget why we were saved to begin with. And so when we're not pursuing godliness in our lives, when when we don't really care, brothers and sisters, that means we are growing to forget the basics of the gospel. Thirdly, in verses 10, we see that godliness confirms you are actually a Christian. Therefore, brothers and sisters, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. Godliness confirms you're actually a Christian. So what we began with, how do I know I'm really saved? How do others really know that I'm saved? Because of the fruit of godliness. But Jesus regularly uses that illustration of fruit. You will know the tree, whether it's good or bad, by its fruit. Fruit of godliness, fruit of the world. 
What kind of fruit do you have? What fruit is evident in your life? Is it these things? Are you growing in virtue? Would would others say that you are a virtuous woman or a virtuous man? That you possess in you characteristics of God? The way you lead your spouse or the way that you lead your home reflects the way God in His kindness and grace and mercy leads His people? Godliness confirms you're actually a Christian. Brothers and sisters, that is the metric we use to bring in and remove members. We bring in members that confirm they're actually a Christian because of the fruit of godliness in their life. If there's no evidence of the gospel, no evidence of transformation, no evidence of willingness to obey the commands of Scripture, then then we're just like, no, you need to hear the gospel. You need to be converted. You need to be transformed. And we remove from membership those who no longer possess godliness, but rather worldliness. Number four, godliness guards against losing your faith. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Peter does not mean that you're not going to fail. Doesn't mean that you're not going to stumble. Doesn't mean that you're not going to have bad days. Doesn't mean that every day is going to be a continual progressive growth without regression. No, but godliness, Peter says, guards against losing your faith. It keeps you from apostatizing. It's those that are not diligent, not earnest in their pursuit of godliness are the ones that fall away. The ones that prove they were never a part of us. Fifth and finally, godliness is necessary for entrance into the kingdom of Christ. For in this way, in verse 11, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter concludes by saying, listen, if you want to go to this kingdom, you've got to be godly. You've got to take godliness seriously. You've got to take holiness seriously. I remind you often of this truth, that only holy people go to heaven. Because only holy people can be with God. And what God is doing in salvation is taking sinful, wretched, broken people like me and like you, and He's transforming them and making them holy. Holiness is is the ticket in the door. A godless life, as we heard from Nathan earlier, those who live godless lives will be cast out to utter darkness. It is only those that pursue godly living. And brothers and sisters, the saddest state of a Christian is the one where they are not living a godly life. I'm convinced the saddest Christian in this room is the one who's not taken seriously godliness. Primarily because you have no assurance of salvation. You have no confidence that you're truly saved because there's no evidence in your life to confirm God's work in you. And so let the exhortation ring. Will you find assurance of salvation today? Will you know for certain that those whom God calls will be saved? Remember that God has given you all things you need for this task. 
We do not go about this endeavor without supplies. We are supplied from our Heavenly Father on high. We have everything we need, he says, for life and godliness. We work by God's power alone, but we work nonetheless. And we work hard and we work earnestly in our quest for godliness. Brothers and sisters, I pray that these truths would motivate you. Motivate you to pursue Christ-likeness in your life. For you will need to have them if you desire to be with God. Let's pray. Gracious Father in heaven, we give praise and glory to you. We pray your word would transform us. We pray that we would be changed eternally. I pray for this congregation that they would grow in godliness and Christ-likeness. Lord, we pray now that as we attend to the table, sweet reminder that one day we will all eat of this. All those who are truly saved will eat in white robes, robes of righteousness, holiness. One day we will be holy as you are holy. Let us remind ourselves of that truth now. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.